Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode five, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2009 animated children's fantasy horror film Coraline. Based on the book by Neil Gaiman, it was written and directed by Henry Selick and stars the voices of Dakota Fanning, Terry Hatcher, Ian McShane, Keith David, Jennifer Saunders, Don French, and Robert Bailey Jr. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So author Neil Gaiman met with Henry Selick sometime in 2001, right before Gaiman's children's novella, Coraline, was published. Apparently, Gaiman was a huge fan of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, which Selick directed, and offered Selick the option of adapting Coraline to the big screen. At first, Selick was only going to create a short film, but instead decided to make a feature-length film, as well as add a few new elements, including Coraline's new friend, YB. And we'll talk more about YB later. When designing the characters, Selick employed Japanese illustrator Tadahiro Yusugi, who was inspired by MGM's classic film adaptation of, you guessed it, The Wizard of Oz. He wanted to make the quote-unquote real world muted and gray while make the other world more colorful. According to Yusugi, in an interview with Bill Desowitz, quote, At the beginning, it was supposed to be a small project over a few weeks, so to simply create characters. However, I ended up working on the project for over a year, eventually designing sets and backgrounds on top of drawing the basic images for the story to be built upon, unquote. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, somewhere between 28 and 35 animators worked at a time on rehearsing or shooting scenes, producing 90 to 100 seconds of finished animation each week. Oh my god. <laughs> It's like, have you seen that Parks and Rec episode where I, his name is Ben, I think, right? And he makes like a little like figure that like he works oh, on it for yeah. like all day. Yes. And it like does one, it like stands up out of its bed and that's it. <laughs> Would oh a depressed God. person make this? <laughs> Amazing. I can't imagine that. Man, that takes so much dedication. Holy cat. Yes. Dedication, patience, but I just don't know if I have that. No. <laughs> so the puppets had separate parts for the upper and lower parts of the head and could be exchanged for different facial expressions. And the characters of Coraline could potentially exhibit over, it's like 208,000 facial expressions. Wow. Uh, according to Ain't It Cool News, the soundtrack for Coraline features songs by French composer Bruno Coulet, I think is how you say their name, uh, with one, the other father song by They Might Be Giants. Coulet's score was performed by the Hungarian Symphony Orchestra and features choral pieces sung by the Children's Choir of Nice in a nonsense language. So that opening song and the exploring song that happens when Coraline's exploring, that's not in a real language, which is kind of fun. Okay, that explains it. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are they saying? <laughs> Oh my god. So Selick mentions that the main soloist uh, was a young girl uh, and her name was also Coraline. Oh my god, that's so cool. Yeah. So Coraline was theatrically released on February 6, 2009, and with a budget of only $60 million, it was a box office success, earning over $124 million worldwide. According to Tom Nickel, Henry Selick said, quote, Coraline was a huge risk, but these days in animation, the safest bet is to take a risk, unquote. 
So not only did Coraline do well at the box office, but it was a critical success as well. According to film critic Andrew Kendall, quote, it pitches the increasingly creepy dynamic that defines its fantasy world at a level that does not condescend to its children audience, nor seem too deluded for its adult audience, unquote. Yeah, so with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. 11-year-old Coraline Jones and her family move into an old house known as the Pink Palace Apartments. As her parents struggle to complete their gardening catalog, she meets their new neighbors, Mr. Bobinski, who is supposedly training a circus of mice, retired burlesque actresses Mrs. Spink and Forcible, Wybe, the landlady's grandson, and a mysterious black cat. YB gives Coraline a button-eyed rag doll he discovers that eerily resembles her. The doll lures Coraline to a small door in the living room that is bricked up and can only be unlocked by a button-shaped key. That night, a mouse guides Coraline through the door, a portal to a seemingly more colorful and cheerful version of her real home. Coraline meets her other mother and other father, button-eyed doppelgangers of her parents that appear more attentive and caring. After dinner, she goes to sleep and awakens in the real world the next morning. YB tells Coraline about his grandmother's sister, who disappeared in the apartment as a child. Undeterred, Coraline visits the other world the following two nights and meeting the other and meets the mute other YB. Coraline also encounters the black cat who is able to speak in the other world. The other mother invites Coraline to stay in the other world forever on the condition she have buttons sewn over her eyes. Horrified, Coraline demands to return home. The other mother transforms into a menacing version of herself and imprisons Coraline. There, Coraline meets the ghosts of the other mother's previous child victims, including YB's grandmother's sister. The spirits reveal that the other mother, whom they call the Beldum, uses ragdolls like Coraline's to spy on them, taking advantage of their unhappiness and luring them into the other world. After they agreed to let her sew buttons on their eyes, the Beldum consumed their lives, trapping their souls. Coraline promises to free them by finding their eyes. The other YB helps her escape back into the real world. Coraline cannot find her parents. Eventually, she realizes they have been kidnapped by the Beldum. Miss Spink and Miss Forcible give Coraline an adder stone, meant for bad or lost things. Coraline returns to the other world to rescue her parents, but the Beldum locks the door and swallows the key. Following the cat's advice, Coraline proposes a game. If she can find the ghost's eyes and her parents, they will all go free. If not, she will remain in the other world and let the Beldum sew buttons over her eyes. Using the stone, Coraline finds the children's eyes. With each one she collects, part of the other world disintegrates until only the living room is left. Coraline sees the Beldum and her skeletal, arachnid form. The child ghosts warn her that even if she wins, the Beldum will never let her go. Thinking quickly, Coraline tricks the Beldum into unlocking the portal. While the Beldum is distracted, the cat finds her parents trapped in a snow globe. Coraline throws the cat at the Beldum's face. The cat scratches her button eyes out. Blinded, the Beldum chases Coraline, but with the help of the ghosts, she manages to close the door and lock it, severing the Beldum's right hand in the process. Coraline's parents reappear in the real world with no memory of what happened to them. That night, the ghosts appear in a dream to thank Coraline for freeing them, but warn her that the Beldum will never stop looking for the key. Coraline decides to drop it down an old well, but before she does, the Beldum's severed hand attacks her. YB arrives and smashes the hand with a rock. They throw pieces of the hand and the key into the well and seal it shut. The next day, Coraline and her parents, who have finally finished their catalog, host a garden party for their neighbors. YB brings his grandmother and Coraline prepares to tell her about her sister's fate. Thank you, Abby, for that lovely little plot summary. You are welcome. <laughs> okay, so the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes. There are many conversations between Coraline and her mother, Mel, and Coraline and the neighbors who are the sisters, and they all have names, so it counts. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> okay, so Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes, it was. Huh. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Yes, it was produced by Claire Jennings and Mary Sandal. 
was the final girl or main character a person of color? Well, Coraline's the main character, obviously, and she is white, but her friend YB is black and he plays a major role in the film. And uh, were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the mother and the other mother. And Abby, I know you feel this too, because... You and I both love the duality in characters. <laughs> yes, the best. Uh, the real mother doesn't cook. The dad does. And uh, she's also a working mother. She's super busy and gets frustrated, so she doesn't smile very often either, which is also kind of interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, the other mother, however, she cooks. She wears like red nail polish and she's always smiling. The other mother is playing into the female gender norms of a heterosexual housewife. This is interesting because Coraline obviously feels like this should be the norm. Mm -hmm. She loves the other world and she loves that her other mother is the cook and that her dad has no other chores but to play with her, basically. Mm -hmm. And the other mother really just exists exists solely to care for Coraline and that's it she has no other identity Mm, here's the thing about that though it leads to smothering exactly exactly (laughs) listen like I know many women who are homemakers and they absolutely love being stay-at-home moms and taking care of their kids but yeah my 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 mom was a stay-at-home mom oh yeah oh my gosh um but I'm noticing like now especially because of the presence of social media Mm. like being a mother has become a personality trait that right like it often gets blown up into an entire identity and it is so toxic especially for young children like being a mother is just one facet of life it is not meant to be your entire existence because you know, one day your children grow up and they leave you and that's it. Like, you're on your own again. Mm-hmm. And the ability to create life is beautiful and wonderful. And it's so important because it's literally what keeps humanity going. But, right. you know, but it's not the only thing that matters. And the other mother is a portrayal of this, in my opinion. Like, She wants to be stuck in a time capsule where she has something to fill the void and like pour her own wants and desires into and some it's something that she can control but can convince that that control is love. Like it's what happens when you don't care. It's what happens when you don't take care of your own needs first and then You know, you become a mother and suddenly all of those needs that you've put aside get displaced into your child. So it's kind of wild. You know, I just thought of this. Um, It's interesting that you point, that you put that like the other mother and then like, you know, mothering and childbirth and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other mother technically didn't give birth to Coraline. Right. She actually is going to kill her right so she's sort of like the alien she's sort of like alien right like she is like the abject yeah like she is the phallic mother and um yeah so she takes life really and she takes life because she's wearing this mask of this homemaker and it's it's ironic almost you know just kind of interesting she's a predator that's like how she she lures people in Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when Coraline, like, leaves the other world for good at the end, the other mother, a.k.a. the Beldum, screams at her and says, don't leave me. I'm going to die without you. Mm-hmm. And that is super scary stuff. Like, that to me was actually the scariest part of this film was hearing yeah. her scream. That I was like, oh, my God. Like, that is, yeah, you're yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Um, And according to the essay, Problematizing the Ideal Homely Mother in the movie Coraline, quote, the movie Coraline depicts two mothers. First, 
first mother being absorbed in work and laptop and the other mother taking on the pretense of being good. This mother directly problematizes the myth of the ideal homemaker as the most appropriate motherhood by portraying a mother who works from home but is highly inattentive towards her daughter's needs despite meaning well for her. The movie therefore succeeds in creating gray areas besides the white and black portrayal of mothers that is prevalent in movies revolving around motherhood. The movie is also a reflection of this new culture of mothers who work from home and proves that that may not necessarily solve the problem, unquote. And this is so relatable because as a new mother who also works from home, it makes like it makes it nice because I am there for my son when he needs me. But at the same time, I get nothing done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like while while writing the script, like I was on and off trying to entertain him to keep him from crying and getting upset. And I was also like sitting at my desk breastfeeding him while writing the script, too. And like I actually just did a guest appearance on the show last year's horror. And I'll link their show in the show notes. Um, and we had to pause recording because Aww. my son was crying and my husband couldn't console him. And um, it was kind of upsetting, obviously, for my kid. But it was upsetting for me, like, because I want, like, I just want, like, a goddamn minute, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Can I just do something for myself and not have to worry about, you know, somebody else's needs, you know, wants and needs, just for, like, an hour or so. Um, so working from home does have its perks, but... I'm also at my son's mercy at the same time. And it's hard to maintain your identity outside of motherhood when you're also working from home, too. And I think both mothers do eventually come together at the end of the film. Like, the first mother, a.k.a. right, the real mother, rewards Coraline for her patience and independence at the end by giving her the gloves that she really wanted. And I think this is the goal, right? Like, the other mother, I feel like, would have just given her the gloves because Coraline wanted them. Yeah, And, like, the other mother might seem more desirable at first, but just her alone is very dangerous, like you said. And, and like, she's narcissistic, and she obviously can only survive off of Coraline's love and innocence and constant attention. Yeah. And, um... And the, uh, and the real mother, she has a life outside of motherhood, and I, she... We'll talk more about this in a minute, but she... She knows that Coraline can be on her own right now, but it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, if anything, the portrayal of working moms in this film is pretty, like, it's pretty realistic. There there are obviously pros and cons to both, like, working from home and, like, also going out and, like, having your own career and, you know, coming home to your family, but it isn't always black and white you know like sometimes you have really good days and sometimes you have like really unproductive frustrating days and motherhood itself really can be a gray area because because you're unsure of yourself sometimes I don't think I know any mom who is like 100% of the time like yep this is you know this is exactly how it's gonna go I'm gonna wake up and this is how my day is gonna go (laughs) like yeah every day is different (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Every I mean, night is different too. Yes. Like, I think if the film were to show a completely cold mother who doesn't care for Coraline at all, that would be unrealistic. Um, yes. And I think if Coraline's mom stopped her work all the time to dote on her, that would also be a fallacy. Like, stuff like that doesn't happen. And you see throughout the film that, like, motherhood it obviously is not always pretty, you know, you do the best that you can to provide for your family, which is, you know, what Coraline's mom is doing. And it's actually kind of refreshing to see a mom who is like a little bit miserable who and like frustrated (laughs) because that's the reality of it. Like so many times in movies, you see moms who are like super bubbly and like oh I love motherhood it's all I ever wanted out of life and like we talked about this a little bit in our Adams family episode but like every single day is not sunshine and rainbows and I love Coraline's mom for that reason because she does love Coraline she cares for her so much but she's just like 
oh, like this is crunch time and I got to get this shit done. <laughs> Seriously, though. Yeah. And I I, I want to go back to the narcissism theory because there's an, an essay called Coraline and the Other Mother Narrative by the author only known as Louisa, and they say, quote, Coraline is an Alice in Wonderland adventure, abusive, magical, and includes an important cat. It's the tale of a little girl who discovers a door to a parallel world where her other mother, the Beldam, and father reside. Initially more attentive, more beautiful, and more loving than her own parents, but with curiously emotionless flat button flat black buttons for their eyes. It's a world where at first her mother seems perfect. The parallel with puppets is too clear to be missed. Coraline will become her puppet. She will give her eyes. She will sacrifice her unique perspective on the world and lose herself to her other mother's vision of herself. The other mother believes she is the perfect mother, which is what narcissists think, unquote. And Louisa talks about how she was raised by a narcissistic mother in her other essay called The Maternal Narcissist. And they say, quote, If I could be the perfect daughter, I would be proof of her fantastic mothering skills, because as a brilliant reflection of her mothering, I made her love herself. Finally, she was loved, but the price she paid to get the love was my destruction. Because my mother was a grade A manipulator and a narcissist, she persuaded everyone, including me, that she only had my best interests at heart, whilst in reality, it was all about her. Her huge insecurity needed feeding." Unquote. Ooh, wow. <gasps> and doesn't that just sound like the other mother? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and to add to this idea, Isabella Martinez said, quote, Her real mother did not really put any effort into creating the perfect room for her daughter and instead gave Coraline the freedom to set it up herself. The other mother did the opposite and decorated the room with things that she believed Coraline would enjoy. Although Coraline liked her room in the other mother's house, in the end, she was she still found out she identified with her real life in her real home. Unquote. And Martinez continues and says, through the imaginary mother, Coraline is able to experience what it is like to have a very powerful and overbearing mother. She is given the opportunity to live her life in an alternate world with the other mother's offer, unquote, which we know is the buttons. Mm hmm. So uh, Martinez continues and says, quote, when she is pressured into sewing buttons to her eyes, she realizes that this is overly present and almost in that this overly present and almost invasive mother is not what she desires. The buttons, the button eyes represent Coraline's final step into leaving her real life behind. However, when it all comes down to it, she finally realizes that she values the independence her parents help create. Unquote. Mm, wowee. Wowee. <laughs> well, so the, let's talk about identity and eyes. And there's a lot of psychology here. So I'm going to let you talk about it, Abby. <laughs> yes. So according to David Rudd in their article, an eye for an eye, like the yeah. letter I, <laughs> Neil Gaiman's Coraline and Questions of Identity. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, a feature of the uncanny worth mentioning is one that consolidates much of the above, the fear of being buried alive, which Freud describes as, for many, the most uncanny thing of all. He argues that the root of its fearful quality lies in the fact that, like the female genitals, it is connected to something that was once during our intrauterine existence, home to us all, but which in later life can seem anything but a smothering, threatening environment. Freud's key literary example of the uncanny is Hoffman's tale, The Sandman, in which the eponymous mythical figure of the boogeyman who throws sand into children's eyes, making them jump out of their heads all bleeding, is central. Wow, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> Freud reasons thus, we know from psychoanalytic experience that the fear of damaging or losing one's eyes is a terrible one in children, often enough a substitute for the dread of being castrated. 
However, it is not necessary to see castration in biological terms. It seems far more plausible to read it symbolically, as both do Lakin and Kristeva, where it is our entry into language that results in the world being chopped up into fragmentary signifiers, denying us access to that wholesome oneness we imagine we once experienced. Whichever way we read it, though, the other mother is without a doubt a castrating figure, unquote. There you go. She's the monstrous femme. Oh, my goodness. Rudd goes on to say, quote, aside from the associations with Oedipus, who put out his own eyes with a needle-like brooch pin when he realized his intimacy with his mother, unwittingly returning to that home-like place, Coraline's button replacements have the related association of giving up one's soul, the eyes being its windows. Aside from paying the ferryman, this was one reason the eyes were covered with coins, to keep them shut, just as mirrors were covered when someone died in case their soul might go into the mirrored surface and haunt the living. Something like this has already happened in the other realm, where three earlier child victims of the other mother are trapped as revenants behind a mirror, ghosts whom Coraline eventually manages to lay to rest. Finally, the spool of black cotton itself warrants mention, bringing to mind Freud's discussion of his grandson, who also associated it with a mother figure, his own, using it to symbolize her when confronted with her absence. However, whereas in this scenario the child tried to come to terms with itself as a separate, albeit lonely being, Coraline is being offered the opposite, the prospect of being sutured to the mother forever, of being buried alive. In short, the mother offers to replace Coraline's eye with her own eye. An eye for an eye, in fact. Mm. Eye is in the letter I, yeah. Right, yeah. Rudd continues, quote, The other mother almost seems to read Coraline's mind at some points and fulfill her wishes before she even voices them, something that Coraline may have expected of her parents as a little child. Richard Gooding points out that these are uncanny elements, things that Freud described as being unsettling because they seem to bring us back to childlike ways of thinking. Coraline isn't initially bothered by these things, though, she seems happy to have parents whose attention is all on her. It isn't until she realizes that the cost of staying in this other world would be to have buttons sewn into her eyes that she begins to be afraid, unquote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yikes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yikes. For yeah, 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 yikes. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it also becomes an awakening for her. Um, I was not an only child. Mm-hmm. I have two sisters, but... I have had close friends and family members who were, and as we were growing up, I remember them, you know, being kind, but also having different ideas about, you know, like, sharing not only mm-hmm. material things, but, um, like, thoughts and feelings and how it felt to be the sole person between their parents. And I think when you're an only child especially when you are young, you tend to focus those feelings intrinsically. And if you're not careful, they can eat away at you and have some serious consequences in the end. And in my experience, some of those people that I'm close with have at some point in their lives blamed their parents for their loneliness or like their feelings of isolation. Or they think, you know, I'm their only child. Why can't I have these things that I want? Because it's not like they have other kids to worry about. Like, it can lead to feelings of bitterness. And Coraline definitely goes through a huge transformation. And we see her go from that egocentric little girl to a caring, brave, loving kid. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting insight. And, um, I was also one of three girls, so I was not an only child. So only children listening to the show, if you are willing to share, let us know your thoughts on this, because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, same. And I think that this really bleeds well into our next uh, topic, which is Coraline's Rite of Passage and a fairy tale about maturation. Hmm. So we just talked about the two mothers, okay? Well, now we have to talk about how they relate to Coraline's growth as a character. 
And um, I want to mention the book that I love, uh, Women Who Run With Wolves by Clarissa Pincola Estes. And uh, in the book, she discusses the plot device in fairy tales of killing the too good mother. And she says, quote, the initiatory process begins when the dear and good mother dies. In our lives as daughters, there is a time when the good mother of the psyche, the one which served us appropriately and well, turns into a too good mother, one which by virtue of her overly safeguarding values begins to prevent us from responding to new challenges and thereby to deeper development. In the natural process of our maturing, the too good mother must become thinner and thinner, must dwindle away until we are left to care for ourselves, unquote. And Coraline at first is not ready to give up this too good mother. And this too good mother, in my opinion, is the Beldam. I mean, she even looks like her, right? Like she gets thinner and thinner by the end of the film. Yeah. She is literally wasting away when Coraline starts to become herself, you know, become her true self. Oh, yeah. Um, And the Too Good Mother keeps the heroine from becoming their own person, right? So this is why in fairy tales, like Cinderella, the mother always dies. The heroine needs to find her own path. And if you don't grow up, really, and learn to fight on your own, you'll die. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hence the ghost children. I mean, like, that is the whole reason why I think, metaphorically, they become ghosts is because they the bell dam sucks literally literally sucks the life out of them because they never are able to grow up yeah uh the bell dam traps you in childhood forever because she cares for you and feeds you and entertains you with all of her magic but like i said she eventually just sucks the life out of you and Coraline's real parents know that a bit of freedom is really good for Coraline and that she is ready for it. Mm -hmm. Just like Estes says, the too good mother might be gone, but her spirit still lingers within the real mother. And I believe this is shown when Coraline receives the gloves at the end from her real mother. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you're talking about fairy tales, like you can also look at it as the mother maiden and crone which is obviously represented like in that classic fairy tale way so i think that's really cool too yeah and there's also a lot of other references to fairies and stuff in this like the well where the you know Coraline is looking for this well right and it Mm -hmm. has um a fairy ring around it right it has a bunch of like mushrooms around it and um i believe that fairy rings i think protect right from from protect you like when you go in them yep and so it would make sense that her and yb they would throw the hand right of the bell dam into and the key into this well surrounded by this fairy ring to kind of keep the evil out basically yeah definitely To talk about the rites of passage, we've previously mentioned ethnographer Arnold van Gennep in our episode of The Silence of the Lambs and how Clarice in that film has a rite of passage. Well, Coraline also has this rite of passage in this film. And um, unlike Clarice's story, though, I I feel like Coraline's rite of passage starts much later in the story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, as mentioned in our Lambs episode, and please listen to that episode for more information on what are the rites of passage, um, the first stage is separation. And I believe this is when Coraline's parents go missing, right? So that's like right at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. And um, after that, she's forced to then go to the next stage, which is the transitional stage, when she goes to the other world to find her parents and to help the ghost children and to defeat the Beldam. And then the third stage is incorporation, when Coraline defeats the Beldam and returns to the real world. And she has incorporated herself into adulthood, I guess. And she helps her parents host their garden party and she serves everyone drinks. Um, I'd say she grew up a little. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even in the way that she investigates and thinks of solutions you can see that she's abandoned a lot of childish ideas and comes to the realization that you know although she is being raised to be an independent person she still needs her parents 
and her parents need her. Like, they're a family, you know? They rely on each other. And she comes into an understanding of what it means to be mature, which turns out to be hilariously misconstrued by her parents, who think (laughs) that she's just playing make-believe while she's learning these really big life lessons. So, Isn't that so funny, though? That's so true. She's learning to grow up. But while she's doing that, her parents are like, like oh, what? stop pretending and playing around. And she's like, yeah. I'm not. She's like, what the heck even? <laughs> you guys are covered in snow. No, we're not. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Like, in a way, she kind of switches roles with her parents. She see mm. things for what they truly are while also taking part in a complete fantasy. Like, something that is completely unattainable right which is like the other world but she learns so much about herself and you know what her parents are trying to do for her and like life in general so it's it's really beautiful actually like when you really think about it it is and i think that that sort of message is super positive for parents to see but as well as their kids and i think this is one of those great films to watch as a family like you for sure you'll see like this little girl is growing up and she's maturing she's 11 right so she's gonna hit puberty basically at that moment so i think that it's a great conversation starter and i think it's a great um a great way for families to sort of see like you know like it's okay to (laughs) let your parents be on their own they don't they don't necessarily not care for you it's just that it's okay for you to start doing things on your own so. Right. And also that your parents are human, you know, yeah. like they yes. they are not always going to be perfect, but they still love you unconditionally. Yeah. So I think I think one of my biggest moments of growing up was realizing that my parents um, did not need to be on a pedestal. Right. That like they're just people. They're just people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think that once you come to that realization that your parents are not gods you know <laughs> like because yeah. I think as a kid I think about that with my son I think he looks at me and he's like who are you, <laughs> like, you <know? laughs> who is she <laughs> who is the bringer of food and, and sleep you know so yeah I think you grow you do eventually grow out of that and it's life-changing yes for sure okay let's get into our final thought uh. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with YB why is he really in this film yeah. Okay. I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> and Abby and I have already had a very long text conversation about this, too. Yes. And I've done oh a lot of God. soul searching since then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I want to, I don't like YB. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't, don't like YB. I um, don't either. <laughs> but I want to be clear. I don't like YB because he is a useless plot device. YB as a character is actually kind of great. Like, not only is he black and also possibly biracial, but he's coded as autistic. So Mm -hmm. here we have some very positive representation, in my opinion, because YB is a sweet and gentle kid from the very beginning. He likes and accepts Coraline before he even really knows her, and he treats her well, and he wants to be her friend. Like, even though she's mean to him, (laughs) he still shows up and... Is willing to hang out with her and play with her. Yeah. This is the thing, though. Like, Henry Selleck apparently created YB so that Coraline would have someone to talk to. Because in the book, Coraline has a lot of internal monologues, like most solo protagonists do. But the weird thing here is that in the film, she does talk to herself a few times. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I <laughs> like, do it all the time. <laughs> I feel like kids need to see that that's okay. Like, have discussions with yourself. Know yourself. It's okay. I literally do this every single day. In fact, I feel like if you have pets, you talk to your pets a lot. Yes, right? of course. Yeah. Yes. You tell you you do the hot goss with your pet about oh, what's yeah. happening. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I I don't have a pet right now, but I have a small child who doesn't speak English. So I <laughs> I yes. talk to him about the hot goss that's going on. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, have you heard 
the word. <laughs> like, <laughs> Seriously, you gotta. I mean, and it's so normal to just talk out loud when you're by yourself. Yeah. So the fact that they feel like that's going to be a strange, weird thing for this 11-year-old child to do is so bizarre to me. It's so silly. Ugh. I really feel like that is a cop-out answer, to Same. be honest. Same. Um. So what happens here is that YB just ends up being the guy that guides <laughs> Coraline through her journey of self-discovery. And it takes away all of her agency as a character, in yeah. my opinion. Yep. And I've seen some people online argue that, well, she's mean to YB. And at the end of the film, she's nice to him. So she becomes a kind human, right? And we do say that. Like, Coraline becomes a nicer person. Um, But arguably, Coraline is already a nice kid. Like, she's really snotty to her parents because, you know, she's 11. And at the end of the film, she's nicer to her parents. But she's already nice to her neighbors. Okay, Listen, though, it, it, it's it's so frustrating because, like, even as, like, a stepmom, I'm like, okay, like, the most important thing is for you to be kind but also be assertive. But, it, like, the reality of it is, like, little girls don't have to be kind all the time. And I feel like that's such a goddamn trope with, like, little girl characters it's like a thing that they have to be nice and like ugh, just i like Coraline the way that she is and for people to be like oh well she learns how to be kind by the end of the movie like that's great being kind is important but Coraline is also very assertive i wish you all could see abby right now she is <laughs> rubbing her face like she has a headache <laughs> and she's like stroking her eyebrows it's so and pulling down her cheeks. Seriously, though, it's I forgot that you could see me on FaceTime. <laughs> it's so stressful for me to hear that argument because I'm like, I remember being a little girl and like my grandparents being like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But it wasn't me being unkind. It was just me like speaking my mind or like. You know, if someone was being mean to me and I was like, hey, stop being mean to me or like, hey, bleh. like if I tried to argue with anyone in any way for like being annoying or being mean or whatever, people would be like, Meh, that's not your place. Like you're a little girl. You're supposed to be nice. You know, that's that's a, that's a really good point. That is a very good point. Um, and my argument here is that she is mean to her parents. She's not. That's the thing. She's not mean to her parents. She's just snotty. She's just like, yeah. she just wants to, them to hang out with her and they're, and they don't want to. So she gets bored and she says little snotty things. And, but it's like, she's, I don't feel like she's actually mean, I guess. Is, that's right. not the right word. She's right. just being a kid. Yeah. And she is very, I think, very nice to her neighbors already. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. But then you get to YB, who is the only POC non-neurotypical person, mm. and she is mean to him. Yes. Because she calls him a stalker, which, yeah, he shows up. But I, after watching this, I thought, yeah, but he's also just a kid. Right. You know, and so it's like he's not really a stalker. But I mean, I get it. Like, she's a little kid and she's calling him a stalker. But like... Going back to her being mean, like, she calls him a stalker. She makes fun of his name, which is kind of shitty because she has a name that's very different that yeah. she's constantly correcting people Ugh. of. And she still makes fun of his name being Wyborn. And she says, why were you born? And whatever. And then, like, she also hits him. Like, after she calls him a stalker, she, like, punches him in the arm. And he's like, ow. And I'm like, Coraline? Good Lord. <laughs> But so he's like her punching bag. Nobody else is in this film. And so that's why I'm like, that's kind of problematic. It <laughs> is know? actually because like, like she's super nice and polite to like Mr. Bobinski, who is like kind of a creepy old man who also sneaks up on her. Yes. So in it's the like book, sh in the book, she doesn't even know his name because she doesn't care to learn his name. And at the end, at the end of the book, she's like, what's your name? And she like finally learns his name because she's 
learning how to be right an adult and like be social and stuff and but in the book she's like i don't even care who this person is like you know what i mean it would so it would make more sense if that's how she acted to him like yes. in the movie yes but it's but that n- weird thing where like little girls aren't supposed to be rude to adults but it's right. like mm, it's it's such a conundrum because the person that like you would think could do more harm to Coraline in this and I'm just like using this as an example Mr. Babinski is probably harmless here I am talking about a fictional character like he's a real person but like (laughs) but like potentially Mr. Babinski is more harmful to Coraline because he's like this older man and like he, like sneaks up on her and like he she's tries just... to he tries to get her to come in and see a cirque the circus too yeah which may or may not exist <laughs> right which is like alarming right and then you have yb who is her own age and like a kid and you know just doing these kid things and she's like Rah! like being mean to him like you said well so like, it's like she's it's so weird and here's a kid here's a kid who wants to play with her and she's like go away and it's like Coraline what do you want do you want I somebody know. to hang out with you or not like, <laughs> <laughs> like gosh what the heck even yeah right and like yeah. what I think is missed is that her whole character arc is supposed to revolve around her becoming more dependent on herself rather than others and like this is there's my dependent child crying right now. Oh, no. <laughs> That's okay. He's five months old. He can depend on his parents still. <laughs> Coraline is not like an infant, so she still needs her real mom. So it makes sense that she would learn to do things on her ho- her own and then do the brave act of saving her parents. Mm-hmm. And, like, in the film, her mother, her real mother, gets the cute gloves that she asks for. And, like, her dad tucks her in. So, like, she still needs this, like, love and attention from her parents. She just doesn't need it constantly. Yeah. That's the growth that happens here. Like, even before this, though, Coraline is an explorer and she's curious and she's smart. In this film, YB shows her the well and he shows her the doll and the other YB warns the cat who then in turn warns Coraline about the bell dam. And then the other YB also saves Coraline from the mirror room where the ghost kids are. And at the very end of the film, YB comes in like a knight on a horse and then he saves her. And, like, if you like YB and you think that he adds more to the story than he takes away from it, then that's fine. That's your opinion. But I don't know. I think that if they were going to have a character like this, they should have made Coraline a POC, non-neurotypical little girl. Agreed. Right? Like, I think, like, she's not defined by her whiteness. Right. So why not make her the POC, you know, and her family? And I think that... I I think that would have been amazing because she would have been able to like retain her sense of individuality and growth and to self-reliance while also promoting positive representation for little girls. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I yeah, I think that Selleck really tried here. But honestly, I'm wondering if really the real reason YB was added in was so little boys would have someone to relate to and to root for in the film. Mm, yeah. Which is awful because if anyone needs to see female heroines on film, it's little boys. Like they need to be taught that the story is not always about them coming to save the day. That a female can do that, that a non-binary person can do that. And not only does this empower women and little boys, but like it also kind of takes the slack off of little boys, you know? Yes. And like I know like Coraline almost saves him from falling into the well and like that's good that's great but like really YB is there to save the day and like the point here is that this ends up being like the YB and Coraline show and so I don't know that's my hot take (laughs) no I wholeheartedly agree with you like by the end of the film you're just sitting there like okay what is the point of having him there again like I feel as though the cat could have had more screen time and that would have better suited the storyline. Like, still include YB, but maybe in a more positive light. Like, but like I was saying before, I like that Coraline is feisty because I think that many girls are portrayed as either, you know, 
completely rude, snotty little things or the complete opposite, like overly nice and polite no matter how they've been treated. And to be fair, Coraline likes her space and she likes to figure things out on her own. And YB seems a little invasive because he too is lonely, but like that doesn't mean that Coraline owes him friendship. And that's true. You know, I think in a lot of ways, little girls are expected to make friends with other kids, like, and, uh, like, particularly boys who are mean and pushy, like, it's that stupid trope of, like, oh, if he's mean, that means he likes you, like, and then it's their job to kind of, like, show them the light or, like, teach them how to be kind, and Coraline rejects that notion while simultaneously trying to do the right thing, like, She's she's trying to be better and she's trying to be kind, but like she's only human. And if she is annoyed by the neighbor kid, then, you know, she's allowed to express that. So I don't know. You know, I think that's also a good point. I I I think that it's tough. Like I said, it's a hot take. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I just think that there was a missed opportunity here. Uh, And if you like YB and you think we're full of shit, let us know. (laughs) Let us know on our social media. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. (laughs) Um, And if you think Coraline should have been a person of color, let us know about that, too. Um, This is a fun film. I really like Coraline. Yeah. I like the book. Um, And I think the movie, I don't know, I think it's a great movie to watch with your kids. It's a really cool introduction to horror, too, if you're looking for, like, kind of a spooky movie to show, like, your young kids. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good gateway film. Yeah. For sure. Yes. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Just an update on our Patreon. If you are a new patron, we won't be sending out any gifts until this whole COVID-19 crap blows over, at least for the most part. Because I have a little kid, I'm really trying to stay away from public spaces. So please, new patrons, hang tight. I'll make sure to send you your gifts soon. However, you can also help support the show by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. You can head on over to goodmorningnancy.com merch, and you can click the shirt icon, and that'll take you right to your shop. Um, consider donating what you can to the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as to Trans Lifeline, because that is extremely important right now. Uh, and always. And links to those are in the show notes, as, as usual. Yeah, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.